0: Quakers all over the world, across branches, across geographies are encountering each other. We're finding out that we exist. That's a big change. We've been siloed for decades, for centuries, since the first splits. What are the challenges of that? What are the opportunities?
1: Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 24 of the Western Friend podcast, the joint production of Western Friend and the Soul Force Ones. Today, you will hear the keynote address by John Watts given at the 2023 Inner Mountain Yearly Meeting Annual Gathering on the theme of becoming the Quakers the world needs today. John is a Quaker media creator and spiritual entrepreneur and a member of the Central Philadelphia Monthly Meeting. He founded the Quaker Speak Project, as well as a new podcast called The Quaker. In his keynote address, he makes reference to several of his projects, and you can find links to each in this episode's notes. Before we get started, a heads up that the audio quality fluctuates a bit throughout the episode, so if it gets a little choppy, it does get better. Thank you for tuning in, and let's get to it. So in 2009, 10
0: years or so after um, we were blown away by dial-up internet, I posted a video to a brand new internet platform that was called YouTube. I was a singer-songwriter, so I, I had written a song about growing up Quaker. And as a singer-songwriter, I heard that in order to promote my music, I had to make a video and post it to this brand new platform called YouTube. So I tried that a couple times. I had a couple hundred views on my channel. I said, wow, there are hundreds of people somewhere in America watching me play music. That was really cool. So I made this video about a Quaker meeting that turns into a dance party. After I start giving this song as a message in meeting for worship. I give I, I stand up, I start singing the song. Someone behind me stands up and starts playing the trumpet. Someone else starts drumming, and it becomes this full-on dance party. So I posted that to YouTube. I sent it out to my newsletter list, which was like hundred people at the time. And then I went on a camping trip or something. I was like, well, you know, that would be great. I got back a few days later. And the video had
2: 40,000 views. And there were comments under the video from people all over the world, Quakers, in places I didn't even know that there were Quakers, who were saying, I love this video. Some of them were saying, I hate this video. And some of them were saying, I really agree with this guy. And other people were saying, that guy's not a Quaker. So I had,
0: this, I had this light bulb moment. I realized in that moment in
2: 2009 that we're living in a new era. And for the Religious Society of Friends, there are a lot
0: of implications of that new era. One of them was this, this, this phenomenon that I was experiencing in the comments section, which is that we're encountering each other. Breakers all over the world, across branches, across geographies are encountering each other. We're finding out that we exist.
2: That's a big change. We've been siloed for decades, for centuries, since the first splits.
0: What are the challenges of that? What are the opportunities? I experienced this other kind of comment on that YouTube video in 2009. Which was a bunch of people were commenting, saying, oh, this Quakerism thing looks pretty cool. I've never heard of this before. And I had to respond and say, you know, not every Quaker meeting for worship turns into a dance party.
2: But go to your local meeting, try it out, see what happens. So today I want to tell you a little bit about my story leading
0: up to that. And then what I've done with that light bulb that went off for me in 2009. I grew up in a Quaker intentional community in rural Virginia, just outside of Richmond, Virginia. My parents had just found Quakerism just before I was born. Um, they both grew up Catholic in South Carolina and they left Catholicism and left South Carolina, went to Virginia and they attended a Quaker wedding and they were hooked. So by the time I was born a couple years later, they were fully Quaker, and then when someone in the meeting said, I want to buy a piece of property and subdivide it just for folks from the Quaker meeting, let's do an intentional community, my parents were all in. So I grew up in this amazing environment where we had these six families, open door policy, um, you know, I, w- I was wandering around the property and um, going to Quaker meeting with whatever family went on a Sunday morning. So that was Baltimore Yearly Meeting. I grew up doing a lot of stuff like this, going to annual sessions, going to summer camp, going to Young Friends. And my, my religious education in those
2: programs, you know, is a lot of experiential stuff.
0: There's a lot of kind of world religion and um, sitting in silence and learning about different groups. So when it came time to choose a college, I knew that I wanted to continue that experience. I wanted to continue having Quaker community. And so I researched the colleges that were historically Quaker and looked for one that had a very specifically Quaker program. And that was Guilford College in North Carolina. And my first day at Guilford,
2: when I signed up for the Quaker Leadership Scholars Program there, went on a field trip, and we went on this field trip to a, a, a evangelical friend's church.
0: It was my first time at an evangelical friend's church. There's a pastor. We all face
2: forward. There's a choir. There's a Christian flag and an American flag at the front of the room, and I was really confused. I thought, don't Quakers sit around in a circle and just be silent for an hour? That's what I've been doing my whole life. And it turns out
0: that the Quaker Leadership Scholars Program was designed by this fellow named Max Carter. And if you've met Max, he's a very, he was a very visible character on campus, long white beard and a straw hat. He comes from uh, an Indiana holiness, Quaker holiness background. And Max, in part, designed the Quaker Leadership Scholars Program to do what the internet is now doing, to have Quakers from different branches start to encounter each other and start to be in conversation with one another. And for me, this, it was very challenging. It was very challenging to encounter other kinds of Quakers. I started to question my own identity as a Quaker. I definitely questioned their identities as Quakers. But part of my questioning was that I needed to take some time off. And this is something that a lot of young people can relate to. I grew up Quaker, but I wasn't sure if I was Quaker anymore.
2: And there was a really important time for me where I stepped away from the religion. And I didn't know. And when I came back to it, I came back hungry. What is this thing that I've been doing my whole life? Where did it come from? How did we get here? So I went and I asked Max Carter those questions. And if you've ever met Max Carter,
0: he's been waiting his entire life for someone to ask him those questions. (laughs) I see Sarah laughing. Um, Max is full of stories. And he told me some of my favorite stories uh, in that year. That was my senior year at Guilford College when I came back. And he told me the stories of George Fox
2: and of Margaret Fell, And then he told me some stories that I hadn't heard before that really stuck with me. Some kind of dramatic stories. He told me the story of James Naylor, who was an early Quaker who's famous for doing
0: this wild thing of, of riding a donkey into the city of Bristol in a reenactment of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem from the Bible. And it was such a wild thing that in the 17th century, people were so offended that Parliament met for a, a
2: special session just to try this guy for blasphemy. I said, wow, what's that about? I don't know any Quakers today riding donkeys into the city of Bristol.
0: Max told me the story of Solomon Eccles, who has become one of my favorite early Quakers. Solomon Eccles was, um, he was a Baroque composer. So the time in the 17th century, if you were a musician, you participated in this Baroque tradition, which was for wealthy people. You can think of the frilly powdered wigs and the horses and carriages um, going, going off to the symphony. And Solomon Eccles went on a spiritual journey. And he realized that maybe this Quaker path was going to be his path. And at the time, Quakers believe that music, if it's going to be expressed through us, it needs to be expressed in the moment. I'll write it down. And we certainly don't participate in this frilly, uh, Baroque tradition. So Solomon Eccles deciding to become a Quaker, took all of his manuscripts and violins
2: into a public square in London and burned them all. So as a musician, the only response that I could think of to that story was to write a song about it. And in
0: fact, Max told me so many amazing stories that I wrote an entire album. In my senior year of college, I wrote... Um, these long songs about James Naylor, about Solomon Eccles, about George Fox, and these these stories just really found their way
2: into my heart. What were these people doing in the 17th century that they were so I don't know silly, courageous, somewhere in between? They were so willing to put
0: everything on the line for what they believed in, and what did they believe in? sitting in silence for an hour, or many hours.
2: So that was my perspective as a college student. I knew I wanted to know more. The other story that Max told me about was early Quakers stripping off their clothes and running through the streets naked
0: in the 17th century, which is a lot different than the streaking that I experienced at Guilford College. So that's the context for the uh, for the dance party erupts in Quaker meeting for worship. I was trying to uh, reconcile this tradition that I grew up with of cuddle puddles and wink and FGCs and summer gatherings with this radical, radically confrontational tradition that I was hearing about in the 17th century,
2: and these new kinds of Quakers that I was encountering through the Quaker Leadership Scholars Program. So One of the things that inspired me so much learning about the early Quakers was their commitment to throwing out the forms, throwing out the forms that they saw as empty.
0: The things that uh, that we practice sometimes in religion that early Quakers were saying is actually getting in between us and God. Is
2: distracting us from having a powerful, present, spiritual experience. That's really worked on me. Because as Quakers, we think of our our hour in meeting for worship on Sunday morning as formlessness. That we're really trying to put the spirit in charge. We're all so human.
0: And how long does it take for formlessness to become a form in and of itself?
2: That light bulb moment that I had in 2009, that people are discovering us through this new platform.
0: Well, they weren't, they weren't discovering us. They were discovering me and my music. I felt that that was this incredible responsibility, that all of these people were discovering Quakerism for the first time through this silly music video that I published.
2: So I had this idea, what if every week we published a different Quaker voice on this platform
0: and made this incredible library of conversations available to both Quakers and people all around the world who are interested in Quakerism.
2: So that's the idea that eventually became the Quaker Speak Project. I teamed up with uh, Friends Journal in
0: 2013, and for six years, I traveled around and spoke with different
2: Quakers about their experience, about their spiritual commitments, about this new time that we're living in. So for six years, I got to travel around and talk with friends like these. It really changed my life having these conversations with friends. We are such a powerful people. When we are invited into that space to speak from the Spirit, to speak out of the silence, to
0: share our deepest invitations for the world around us. There's there's one other Quaker sweet video that, that I've been lift up. It's this. Conversation that I had with a friend in New England named Jay O'Hara. And Jay felt a leading a couple of years back. He lived on Cape Cod. And he was looking across, out his backyard, basically, at the largest coal-burning power plant in New England. It was called a Brainy Point Power Plant. And he was watching shipments of coal come in every day. Tens of thousands of tons of coal that was being burned in this power plant. And he said, he prayed about it,
2: and he talked to members of his meeting about it, and he knew that he had to do something. And after having a clearance committee with his meeting, what he came to was that he would take a tiny lobster boat out into the bay
0: and park it in the path of those incoming shipments of coal.
2: And then he dropped an anchor so heavy that he couldn't pull it back up himself. And then he flew a flag that said coal is stupid. So
0: um, it took an entire team of, of Coast Guard folks an entire
2: day to pull that anchor back up. And they slowed down the burning of coal by one day. When I talked to Jay about that experience, he said, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen to me. I knew that there were going to be some consequences. But, you know, it didn't
0: matter. I knew that the Spirit was calling me to do this thing.
2: And the Spirit doesn't always share with us the results of our leadings. So, Jay and his partner, who took the lobster boat out, were
0: and arrested. And when the time came for them to be
2: tried, um, the local district attorney called a press conference instead. And with cameras all around him, he said, Cole is stupid. And he dropped the charges. It was the beginning of a series of protests at the Brayton Point power plant. And two years later, they shut their doors. So that, that video is also online and at quakerspeak.com.
0: It's called why I blockaded 10,000 tons of
2: coal with a tiny lobster boat. <laughs> Very descriptive Quaker title. So each of those videos has been viewed thousands of times by people from all over the world. And the
0: comment sections are robust. I do a lot of traveling like this nowadays. um, And wherever I go, inevitably someone comes up to me and
2: says, I was on a spiritual journey. I was seeking. And so I Googled it. And I found these videos. Now I'm being whatever, the clerk of my meeting or whatever they roped him into. But this is this is the platform, this is the vernacular, this is the 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 native
0: communication technology of the next generation and the generation after that.
2: They're out there and they're hungry and they all talk about the Jay O'Hara video. That example of faithful courage. Of being the spark that started something without knowing where it was going to go. Those are the
0: kinds of stories that the next generation is deeply hungry for
2: because there's so much upheaval. There's so much confrontation that needs to happen to right the world. And there's so
0: much that Quakers have to offer, stretching all the way back to the 17th century, about how to do that confrontation in a faithful, grounded, community-based, loving way. After six years of publishing a video every week, um, I decided to take a break. (laughs) I I passed that project on to a new director, but I encourage you to check all of those videos out at quickerspeak.com. And Friends Journal continues that great
2: program. They just hired a, a new director for it. Something that I found... Is so important that I've learned from Quakerism in,
0: in life and public ministry is this these seasons of being very public and doing big things in the world, things, and seasons of stepping back and reflecting and talking with friends and talking with your meeting and having clearness committees.
2: So I took a couple of years off. I hiked a big part of the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> I realized that I wanted to go deeper with these two pieces that I've
0: talked about so far. this early Quaker spark
2: of courageous faithfulness, loving confrontation, knowledgeable risk, with this new era that we're in of. Facebook in our pockets. One of the things that I've been learning about is that when Quakerism began in the 17th century, we're experiencing a very chaotic time, politically, culturally, there's a great deal of upheaval and a great deal of not knowing what was next. And at the same time, there was this brand new communication technology called the printing press. I recently started a Quaker podcast called The Quaker
0: Podcast, and I got to have a conversation with a historian. And I've been waiting to have this conversation for years <laughs> to have some place to to publish it. Her name is Kate Peters. Um, she wrote a book on early Quakers, and print culture. So I learned a couple of things from the conversation with Kate. One thing that was really interesting to me was that these early Quakers in the 17th century were quite young. They were, in, they were 17 and 18 and 20 and the fact that the printing press was relatively new technology, or at least that everyone suddenly had access to it. There was like freedom of printing um, after the Civil War happened, meant that their parents didn't get it. They had grown up with it. They were natives to this kind of communication technology, and they and they were off to the races. But they were the first generation to be able to do that. Another big piece that I took away from my conversation with Kate Peters was that the fundamental question that many Quakers were asking writings of these pamphlets that were flying up and down the countryside as thick as moths was, what is the nature of authority? If they were writing about a judge, they would say, "Where do you get your authority from, and is that legitimate?" If they were writing about another another priest or another pastor or another theologian, they said, "Where are you getting your spiritual authority? Is that legitimate?" Now that might seem kind of cliche nowadays. We talk about questioning authority, but for me, that's profound. And fundamental to our society, and so relevant today. Part of uh, when I was doing this this video series, I would go and interview people working for different Quaker organizations, and I remember interviewing a, a Quaker lobbyist at FCNL who said, "When I go into the political office." And someone who talk to about a piece of legislation, sometimes I feel intimidated. That person has a lot of power in the world and a lot of authority. And my, I'm just a little Quaker in this political office, you know, walking into the office of a powerful political person. And she said, then I'll remember where authority comes from. It comes from the spirit. And then we're having a
2: conversation of equals and able to be heard in a different way. The last piece that Kate Peters shared with me that I want to lift up for you is this idea that.
0: The early Quakers' writings, their pamphleteering
2: was an extension of their preaching. And that faithfulness that they experienced on Sunday morning, that calling to stand up and speak in front of a room and to speak as faithfully as faithfully as they could, also led them to write and publish. And they chose to do that on whatever platform it was the town square of their day. Whatever platform it was that was going to get them heard. Well, I don't know about you, but this gets me fired up. I know a lot of us feel overwhelmed
0: about all the changes that are happening in our lifetimes about how the world is changing, about how religious communities are changing, about how communications technology is changing. And sometimes it feels like the sky is
2: falling. Like the thing that we're so comfortable with and so used to is disintegrating before our eyes. And I'd like to suggest something. There's a tremendous opportunity for friends right now. That our voices, in the way that we know how to use them, inspired by the Spirit, grounded in silence, faithfully courageous, are deeply needed in the world right now, we have this massive opportunity. And I'm not saying that everyone in this room should suddenly take up an internet ministry. As quick as we know that we're, we're a body and that each of us is given our measure of light and our job is to be as faithful to that measure of light as we can. I know for my part, that viral video in 2009 is still working on me. The fact that we're in a new era, the skills that I've developed in in communications,
0: and the sparks that I'm seeing in the next generation, the platforms that are new to them. For my generation, it was Facebook, and then all our parents joined Facebook. We all went to Instagram. And now all our kids are on TikTok, and Instagram is for old people. Someday TikTok will be for old people and they will be a new thing. But I'm excited about all of it. We can show up for that. As friends, we know how to show up for that.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Western Friend Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in and a very big thank you to John Watts for sharing his keynote. You can find more information about his work and all of his projects referenced in this episode in this episode's notes. And don't forget, new episodes of the Western Friend podcast are released the first Saturday of every month, and you can find all previous episodes in the archive wherever you listen. Until next time, peace.